So this episode is brought to you by Timberlad. Timberlad is a bespoke timber and woodworking company. They can do handmade products um, and commissions of any size. And you can find them on Instagram at Timberlad and on their Etsy store by searching Timberlad. And I know, Chris, you've got a couple of pieces from them. I have a sign for the Riot Slayer, um, a little gym. Um it's a really cool little piece. Um, nice little bit of craftsmanship. And it will add 10 kilograms to your deadlift. Uh, not based on actual science, but it may do. <laughs> what more would you want? So that Tim, uh, Timberlad is sponsoring Silly Goose Gang episode 48 with Navy SEAL Sniper, a New York Times bestselling author, coffee aficionado, martial artist, deep thinker, and all-round good guy, Jack Carr. And we hope you really enjoy this episode, sponsored by Timberlad. The Silly Goose Gang Podcast. There it works. Hey, there it goes. Yeah, I see it right there. Recording the call. There you go. We got it eventually. This is, oh, a, this is a, a strange introduction, I guess. No, um, at least when I'm working, <laughs> that's the main thing. Ali, Ali, this is, this is a, I, no, I don't usually speak at the start. It's usually Ali doing the intros. Um, but Ali was, I'd just seen his face going a little red there uh, <laughs> as he was trying to figure out how to record uh, with a New York Times bestselling author and former Navy SEAL breathing down his neck. And, I know, uh, you and know, you know he performed well. Performed well. <laughs> yeah, you did, you did, though. Under pressure, that's what it's uh, all about. Yeah, totally. It looks like it's all working good, good though, good. which is the main thing. Good marks, man. We so, are happy. Um, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, Jack. It's uh, it's a pleasure for us. Um, yeah, Ali's uh, Ali's the, the big reader of uh, you know the pair of us, so he's uh, yeah, he's to me about your books forever. I'm I'm the stupid one who can't read, so um, <laughs> luckily for you, there's audiobooks. And uh, know, uh, people, people are loving the audiobooks. Uh, Ray Porter is the guy that does the uh, the audio, and he's an amazing narrator. He was on um, uh, that show, Sons of Anarchy, that motorcycle gang show. Oh, yeah. He was in there, and and he's just a fantastic narrator. Um, and I'm not an audiobook guy. I like I, I like a physical book in my hand, and uh, so I didn't really have anybody in mind when Simon and Schuster asked me, "Who do you want to read this thing?" And I was like, "Well, okay, uh, how long do I have to pick?" And they said, "Kind of buy into business today." And I was like, "Oh, geez," because it was like where I live, it was like noon, so it was getting close to business end of business in New York. So I just started listening to samples, and then I heard Ray Porter. I was like, "Oh, well, this guy sounds really good. He could do this." And then listened to a couple more samples of his, and then. I sent it to New York and said, hey, let's do Ray Porter. And what I didn't realize is that narrators bring an audience with them. I just liked oh. his voice. I had no idea that people will follow a narrator from project to project. And I happened to choose, uh, there's like a group of maybe four or five, maybe they're like kind of like known as the top narrators for the genre. And he yeah. is one of those. And I had no idea. So I chose wisely, even though I had no clue that I was choosing wisely. So he brought a whole uh, audience with him. And then that first one was up for Audiobook of the Year in uh, 2018. It was up there with Ruth Ware and, and Stephen King. And we got to go to New York. So we got to hang out together and go to the awards and all that stuff. So it was, a, it was amazing. And he's been fantastic. That's, that, that is uh, cool. that is something that I would never have thought that that would have been, you know, you know have... Uh... Nope, you froze on that no, end. Chris is but, froze uh, up there. You're you frozen, hear me, that's okay. I got you. I got yeah. you. So 
uh, yeah. So the 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 narrator piece is uh, it's the fastest growing segment of publishing, from what I understand, is yeah. uh, the audiobook side of the house, um, and which is also I think a podcast audience naturally gravitates towards audiobooks. So uh, when I did the Rogan podcast, uh, the audiobook was the one that went through the roof, both for the terminal list and my third one that was coming out right around that time, uh, yeah. Savage Sun. Savage so. Song. Uh, but I think, yeah, podcast listeners are also people that are more apt to be uh, audiobook listeners as well. Definitely, definitely. Um, I've, I've, unlike, I've not read your audiobooks, but I've read the three of them. I actually finished Savage Sun on Monday. Man, oh, thank you. A, that is a roller coaster of a book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> genuinely, thank you. genuinely, there was, I mean, all three of them are fantastic, obviously building up over the time. But that third one was a serious, serious roller coaster. Um, what one of the questions that I'd kind of lined up to ask you was: Had the novel writing <clears throat> always been something you'd wanted to do from the start, or you know, was it off the back of being in the Navy SEALs? Kind of what what drove you down the 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 writing kind of path? Yeah, so I always wanted to write since I was a little kid. There are two things I wanted to do in life, and one was to serve my country in uniform, specifically as a Navy SEAL, and then the other was to write fiction in this genre. And and they're related in that as I was growing up, uh, my mother was a librarian, so we grew up surrounded by books and this love of reading. And a lot of the books that I gravitated to back then had protagonists with backgrounds I wanted in real life. One day, so I'm reading books by guys like AJ Quinnell and Tom Clancy and uh, Mark Olden and David Morrell and um, uh, Nelson DeMille and all these guys who typically back then uh, their protagonists had Vietnam experience, either in Army okay. Special Forces or as SEALs or as CIA operatives or something. Um, but I always knew that uh, one day after my time in the military, I'd write those kind of novels um, because back then. In the 80s, you couldn't just Google Navy SEAL or Google Army Special Forces or Marine Recon or something like that uh, and get information. You had to actually go out to the library and do research. And back then, there was hardly anything written about special operations. There was a few things here and there, but you could actually study it all. Uh, now you couldn't possibly do that. So uh, to kind of supplement my the nonfiction study that I was doing, uh, I started reading these novels and absolutely love them and just remember the, the magic I had of reading those novels as a kid. So I wanted to do the same uh, thing someday after I got out of the military. So, so all those novels I read growing up, that provided this foundation, this base. Uh, then all the academic study I did of warfare and terrorism and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies, uh, all that coupled together with my experience downrange in Iraq and Afghanistan and being able to take those emotions and feelings behind certain events I was involved with and apply those to a completely fictional narrative. So it all kind of came together at the right time uh, and the right place in order to create, start creating these novels as I transitioned from military service. So uh, both serving and writing were the two things that I wanted to do with my life. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Chris has just jumped back in again, another technical um, issue there. Yeah. No idea <laughs> no what <worries. laughs> Um, you just sorry. froze up. It's okay. We're, we're talking books, so you'd have been bored anyway. So don't worry about it. <laughs> Sand books. I like to have. I like to have pretty things. I like physical things. So I have like a yeah. a small vinyl collection, and I do have some books. So I have. I'm uh, just looking at my bookshelf. So you know, I have a couple of books. I have a, a Jocko book. I have um, Hundred Deadly Skills from Clint Emerson. There you go. Yeah, uh, awesome. I have Joe Struthers. Shout out to Joe Struthers, a former guest as well. Uh, I pile his books. I, ha I like things. I just, I just, um, you know, when your uh, when your TV series comes out, I will be the number one watcher. That's nice. a nice segue. That's a nice yeah, yeah. segue. <laughs> that is. That was very natural. Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, it's exactly when it's coming out is classified, but uh, we're working on the scripts right now, and it's an eight-part series on Amazon starring Chris Pratt. So uh, they have a writer's room that they put together, and there's a main screenwriter, and then I'm an advisor. So they send me the scripts. The first one, uh, me and the screenwriter, we worked on together. And so what happens in this case anyway, and it's probably different depending, uh, each project is probably different, but uh, this is my only experience. So uh, you, they take this script, and then they take the star, Chris Pratt, and they take the director, Anton Fuqua, and all three of those guys, screenwriter, director, star, all took that to, to Amazon, to Netflix, to, to Disney, to Apple, to all these different uh, new streaming services and old ones, uh, and then they do the pitch. And it was crazy. They, they got in some sort of a bidding war, and it was amazing. But Amazon ended up picking it up, so now it's going to be an eight-part series on Amazon. And, of course, it can still always go off rails, so I don't want to sound overly confident because the day they start filming, things could derail. Um, so, I, so at this point, it just still looks good. And working on the scripts, just did uh, the sixth episode the other day, and I'll see the seventh and the eighth one here pretty soon. But I couldn't be happier with how it's turning out. And, uh, yeah, I feel very, very fortunate that it's going to, to a series, which is what I wanted uh, with the exact star that I wanted, with the exact director that I wanted. So I feel oh, very awesome. fortunate. Chris Pratt seems like um, I'm not really one for celebrities, uh, you know, Hollywood types, but he's, he seems like such a cool guy. He just seems like a really, really down-to-earth uh, you know, guy. Um, yeah, so. yeah, he's totally normal, and he's uh, – I, I got – also got very lucky in that right before my first novel came out, I got a call from an old buddy of mine in the SEAL teams and uh, he calls out of the blue and was like, hey man, I always wanted to, to thank you. I haven't talked to him in like five years or something. And he said, hey man, I always wanted to thank you for what you did for me in the teams. And in my mind, I was thinking like, man, did I bail him out of jail? You know, what did I do? Did I? And he's like, you're the only person that sat me down in your office and talked to me about transition. And you introduced me to people in the private sector and I've never forgotten it. And I always wanted to thank you. And of course I was like, yeah, no, no problem, man. And, uh, and he's like, Hey, I heard you wrote a book. And I said, yeah, it's coming out in a few months. And he said, well, uh, uh, can I give a copy to a friend of mine? And I'm like, yeah, no problem. I'll send you an early copy. It's get these galley copies that come out a few months in advance and I'll send you one. And, and, uh, who's, who's the other one for? And he said, Chris Pratt. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Cause that's why I envisioned playing the main character as I was writing it. So, oh, uh, it's just crazy how that worked out. So Chris read it and a couple weeks later called and wanted to option it for, uh, for a film or a series. So, uh, it started way back then before the first book was even on shelves. Isn't it, um, isn't it amazing how life works out, you know, these things, um, you know, we've had a, a few of these small kind of coincidences that, you know, a person leads to a person doing the podcast, yeah. you know, these things are amazing. I wonder if that's like a, you know, like, I don't want to sound like a hippie, but like putting out good vibes and, and doing the right thing, doing the work is it, you know, I wonder if that's, you know, part of it. Yeah, I mean, it has to be because without that, it doesn't happen. Like if I hadn't sat down in my office, I hadn't cared enough to to do that. But it was just natural to do. It's not like I tried to do it because I thought it one day it might pay off or or something like that. It was just the you know the right thing to do that I would have done for any uh, good guy in the in the teams. Um, and then yeah, there's a whole bunch of other things that have to come into play as well. So no matter what we're doing in life, we have to do it as best as we possibly can. Um, but for me that, I mean, I don't know another way to, to do anything, I guess it's just kind of natural to, to go all in on, on everything that I do, but it's just to this point anyway, has, uh, happened to work out, although I didn't 
plan it like that, but uh, it happened to to work out. That, uh, but if I hadn't done those things, hadn't uh, gone all in on being the best SEAL I could possibly be, the best operator I could possibly be, the best leader I could possibly be, hadn't done that academic study of warfare and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies, and um, hadn't tried to make myself the best operator possible, then some of these other things wouldn't have happened. They would have just kind of died on the vine, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it's just all kind of kind of very very natural progression. Yeah, love that. Sorry, I was just going to say, I, I know I love the the, the 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 quote, and I don't know who originally said it, but you know, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. You know, love that. I love that quote. You know, it's all in. Do the do the best job you can. It doesn't matter if you're you know washing the dishes, or you know doing doing an operation in, in Iraq. I guess you know it's yeah. It's, it's do everything 100 percent, all in. I yeah, no, you have to. Yeah, I don't know another way to do it. Uh, and yeah, my wife would probably be like, "Man, can't you just slow down, or can't you just do something? Maybe put your feet up for a second. Uh, and I haven't been able to yet. Uh, but uh, that's just how that's just how it is, you know. And uh, that's kind of the, the advice that I give anybody, especially I get a lot of questions about writing now, a days. And uh, what I tell people is, hey, you have to make that product. The best it can possibly be so before you start worrying about an agent or a publisher if you should self-publish if you don't do a traditional publisher or uh, how are you going to market it or how you gonna... get the book done get it as good as you can possibly get it and then start allocating some bandwidth towards those other things but until you have the product no matter what it is uh, as good as it can possibly be then don't allocate bandwidth elsewhere make the product and in this case the book as good as it can possibly be then take a breath and plan that road ahead because you have to have that product first that's the main thing yeah totally with with the product you're talking there jack how how much of resell obviously you said you've you kind of always had the idea of chris pratt in your head how much of using reese how much of reese is in you how much of it is a composite of guys you've worked with in the team where did the where did the sort of metamorphosis i guess of reese come from yeah, so his background is very similar to mine in that he's a prior SEAL enlisted sniper, which I was. Uh, he becomes an officer at some point, which I did. Uh, and then when the reader meets him in the first novel, he's at that stage where after this deployment to Afghanistan, he's decided to get out because he's done everything he can possibly do in the SEAL teams at the tactical level. And if he stays in, now he's moving on to that operational level and then eventually that strategic level um so for me as an 04 in the seal teams uh that was the last time my last deployment to iraq was the last time i'd ever tactically maneuver guys on the battlefield after that you do a staff job and then maybe you come back as a seal team co and yeah you're a leader but you're back in that tactical operations center you're not going out with the guys and if you are you're just getting in the way um and so i i done everything I was going to do that I wanted to do in the SEAL teams. My family needed me. We have three kiddos. And so it was time. It was very evident that it was just time to get out and, and move on. So I got to take all those those emotions and experiences uh, from downrange and apply them to a fictional novel to include uh, thinking about moving on, taking care of that family. And then, of course, I fictionalize it all from there. But my protagonist, James Reese, he is a uh, much better shot than I am. Uh, he is much better at jujitsu than I am. He's much stronger, much faster, much wittier uh, than I could ever hope to be. So, uh, so there, I think there's a there's a lot to be said for being for adding that authenticity piece. And the authenticity is kind of like an overused word, but it's also there's not a better one to use uh, yet anyway. Um, and so I do put a lot of that past experience into the novel, and I think that's what made it stand out because Simon and Schuster sees thousands of these books 
every year in this genre. And something made this one stand out, the first one, the terminal list that they saw. And I think that's the the emotions and the feelings uh, from events downrange that I've brought to a fictional novel, because even though it reads, it's fiction, it reads like it's, the emotions feel real because they are. They're real emotions that I just put into a, and applied to a fictional narrative. So um, that was a very long way of saying I just take my past experience to uh, to, to build a character off of uh, and, uh, and make him a lot better than I could ever have hoped to have been. That's that's fine, Jack, because that brings me on to two points. Uh, you know, uh, one thing that Ali, you know, wanted to talk about, one thing that I wanted to talk about. So I wanted to talk about, uh, in fact, they kind of go hand in hand, actually. So one thing that always strikes me is that if you ask somebody you know, if you asked a hundred people, you know, how would you describe a Navy SEAL? I don't think anybody would describe you as creative, but there has to be so much creativity within oh, those. Because yeah. if you look at what guys go and do, there has to be an like a, a real amount of, you know, creative freedom within whatever you're doing the operations that you then a lot of you is going to do amazing things, um, which is something I find really interesting. So there must be, you know, a, a lot of um sorry freedom given to use within within operations oh yeah no the creativity part is is one of the most important factors one of the most important attributes that you can have in in special operations and i'd say the military in general uh probably life in general but uh my experience is a very slim section of uh of armed forces um and that's the special operations side of the house but the enemy is certainly creative the enemy is certainly adaptable and a lot of the times whoever adapts faster downrange is the one that comes out on top so uh creativity um is is one of the primary attributes we're looking for of course we're looking for people that have physical courage have moral courage uh are resilient are uh, are team players of course um and that are creative like that is one of the most important attributes that uh that we're looking for in candidates and one of the things that allows someone to excel in the seal teams is that creative gene um, and being able to apply that creativity to an operation to getting the job done uh, and I think that applies really to, to anything in life uh, we say the creative space a lot and we think when we say creative space we're thinking about filmmakers and we're thinking about writers and sculptors and painters um, and that sort of thing but really it applies to anything uh, in life any space uh, being creative and being able to to adapt and move forward uh, are some of those important things in in life professionally and personally yeah, I mean, we've spoke to, uh, I don't even know how many Navy SEALs now, uh, quite a few. Um, four you know, in total now. Four. Um, four. And it's amazing, you know, you, you would always think of Navy SEALs as being, uh, you know, kind of rough and ready guys who, who get the job done. But everybody, every, everybody that we've spoken to has such a creative side to them. It's really interesting. It's a really interesting kind of dynamic to something that you wouldn't expect from, you know, hardened military guys. Um, it's something yeah. that's really interesting. And that actually, yeah, well, leads, it actually leads beautifully into the thing that Ali wanted to ask about. Indeed, well, yeah. you know, On you it, before we get to that question, so I always uh, kind of framed it as creative problem solving, aggressive, creative problem solving when you're seeing a problem set downrange i mean you're looking uh to capitalize on momentum you're looking for for gaps uh in the enemy's defenses or whatever it may be but uh, really it's that aggressive and creative problem solving um downrange that uh that is of vital importance yeah it actually reminds me the way you're describing it there jack is that uh, just we were talking about joe rogan a moment ago but joe rogan's quote about um 
mixed martial arts where he would say it's um, extreme decision making with dire physical consequences and that's taken to the nth degree obviously with the work that you're doing because the worst that happens in MMA is you get knocked out <laughs> obviously in, sure. in the seals there's a little bit you know it's a it's a, a further level of dire consequence but very similar that you have to have that the ability to think and act and react and oh yeah observe orientate yeah. and that's why jiu-jitsu kind of is such things. a yeah just why jiu-jitsu and, and boxing and mixed martial arts in general is such a uh um has so, so many correlations to uh to military particularly special operations where we have to very quickly also solve problems but you can solve problems quickly and make things worse uh as well so and the enemy always gets a vote so you can all you can plan something on a on a whiteboard uh after studying multiple different operations and lessons learned in a classroom type setting and you can come up with what you should quote unquote do in a certain tactical situation and then everybody can go out for beers or go back to their families or whatever after that classroom uh whiteboard or sand table or whatever it might be but downrange that exact same situation that that answer that you came up with in a classroom isn't necessarily the one that works out downrange because that enemy gets a vote and uh, things can go sideways even if you make every decision uh quote unquote the right one uh things can still go sideways and it also works the other way like sometimes you make a decision that you on in a classroom or on a sand table no way should you ever do that and you do that downrange and for some reason it works out uh, so there's just so many dynamics, so many variables at play uh, that it's a, I mean, it's, what a crazy environment to to operate in. But uh, it also, for me anyway, on this, now that I'm on uh, in the private sector and I'm following this next passion in writing, I'm solving problems on the written page. But if, you know, I can go to sleep at night, I don't have to solve them quickly. Uh, I can sleep on it. <laughs> um, I can go back and change it if I don't like how I uh, came up with it the day before, I can edit. Uh, so, but I'm still doing the same thing. I'm still solving problems. I'm still solving them aggressively, but I'm doing it on the page and the consequences aren't nearly as dire. Uh, if I if I mess something up, like it's it's okay, we're all gonna walk away and it's gonna be all right. Now, yeah, uh, thinking, thinking quickly and making the situation worse, that sounds like Ali trying to escape my Helix. It is. That's right. <laughs> I'm not even gonna lie. That was that was where the the second part of the question was coming because both me and Chris uh, studied jujitsu. We're we're lowly blue belts. Just to put that out there. Um, I'm slightly lower than Chris, as he likes to point out. Uh, quite rightly a, so. Quite a lot lower. Quite a lot lower. Uh, kicks my ass <laughs> on a regular basis, and I'm okay with that at the moment. But when I was reading, and I, I read the three of your novels relatively close again, and but I think it's in Savage Sun you describe a jujitsu fight. Uh, or or a session and mm-hmm. as i was reading it i'm thinking only someone that studied jujitsu because you were talking about like pivoting for the right angle to catch a triangle you know yeah. and, and, and then still looking for digging out the arm bar if if they posture out of the triangle and i was reading it as someone that, that trains jujitsu going jack knows so <laughs> how long have you how long have you been training jujitsu was that from the teams with the the um combatives program or is it something you've taken up in addition to the, the sort of teams train them. Yeah, yep. So there's jujitsu in all three books, and to include this fourth one that I'm working on right now called The Devil's Hand, which comes out in April. Uh, I'm doing the edits on that one right now. But I got into jujitsu very early, so uh, early 90s. 
uh, with a guy called Wellington Megaton Diaz. And I was into boxing at the time and something called Jeet Kune Do, which is uh, something that Bruce Lee came up with. And really it was the precursor of mixed martial arts because he was taking things from Western fencing, Western uh, wrestling. He was taking all these uh, Filipino martial arts like Kali and Eskrima, Arnis, uh, and applying all these things to really take what was useful in a street fight um, and discarding what was useless. So discarding katas and things like that that were more ceremonial or that really paid tribute to a time when you were fighting maybe in armor and then you couldn't train with swords anymore like in Japan and now you're training empty hand, but you're still doing moves that uh, simulate having a weapon, even though the government had taken them from you. Um, so he really separated what worked from what didn't. And then, of course, when we saw the mixed martial arts come on the scene in the in the early in the early to mid '90s, um, you know, took everything to a whole another level, of course. And, uh, and the Gracie family really responsible for for most of that as well. But uh, so I got in very early. And back then, though. Uh, if you knew, uh, you know, how to mount, how to arm bar, uh, to get somebody in the guard, you know, you like four moves, like you were good. Like you were better than 99% of people out there. If you got in a fight, you were going to be, unless somebody came over and, you know, a friend came over and stabbed you in the kidney or something like that when you were in the mount, um, like you were going to be, okay, we're going to come out on top because nobody really knew this stuff, uh, at least in the United States anyway. I'm not yeah. talking about Brazil or somewhere like that, but, um, so I was in early. Uh, I knew my like four, four or five moves, so I felt pretty good as I went into the SEAL teams in the in the late '90s because they really still hadn't um, caught on really that much. There was a couple guys that did it, but not very many. Uh, and then after that, after let's say '99, 2000, then it just exploded, of course. And uh, but I think I plateaued way back then. Um, I've been studying martial arts my whole life uh, to get ready for the SEAL teams, to prepare myself mentally and physically for going to buds and then going into the the SEAL teams. Um, but I thought because there wasn't the internet back then. You just kind of assumed that once you got to the teams that you're gonna do all sorts of uh, combatives and it wasn't called combatives back then, but uh, you're gonna do all sorts of like unarmed combat type training and you know, all sorts of like, like knife fighting, all whatever. That, no, we didn't really do any of that stuff uh, once you got to the teams. So most guys, now there is a combatives program. I'm sure it's much better now, but for most of my time in the teams, the guys that were really good at that sort of thing, uh, the empty hand thing, um, they went out and did it on their own. They were like after work, they went and they sought out the, the people, the good jujitsu players, and they trained with them. Um, so guys really had to take an interest on their own to get good at it. Um, now, of course, combatives, because a lot of the things we were doing with prisoner handling uh, incorporated, like you having body armor on, you having your rifle, and then you having to deal with somebody that you didn't really uh, want to or need to shoot, maybe. Um, and how are you gonna deal with them? Uh, how are you gonna zip tie everybody when you have this rifle? banging around on you, um, that sort of thing. Uh, people clearing rooms maybe beyond where you are. Uh, so there are all these different things you're incorporating, but it wasn't necessarily, you know, mono, imano, uh, empty hand, no weapon type stuff, uh, which is fantastic stuff, both for, for mindset, uh, for that just aggression, for the problem solving aspect. There's so many great parts, but when you look at it from a uh, time allocation standpoint, when I came in, you know, you were learning to blow things up. You were learning uh, small unit, tactics you were jumping out of planes you're diving you're going to alaska doing cold weather warfare training you're doing desert warfare training you're doing urban warfare training you're doing close quarters combat you're doing all these other things so really that unarmed combat type stuff fell to the bottom of the list and most guys had to go out and do it on their own so i feel very fortunate that i had done a lot of boxing that i had done that jujitsu early on and i had this foundation um and i did a little bit here and there 
uh, throughout my time in the teams, but I didn't dedicate myself to it the way I thought I was going to when I came in because I was focused on all those other aspects of the job. Um, maybe if I hadn't had any experience before then, maybe I probably I would have sought it out. But uh, you know, I was concentrating on uh, learning how to be as a new, brand new enlisted guy. Okay, now I'm the I'm the radio guy. How am I gonna I gotta learn this radio? And if this goes down, I need to have a backup. I need to learn HF communications. I need to learn SATCOM stuff. I need to learn all this these other sorts of things. The new guy. Oh, now I'm jumping out of planes. I better learn how to pack the chute correctly. Uh, I better learn how to steer this thing and land the right way so I don't break something. Uh, okay, now I'm diving. Whatever it is, you know, I'm going to breacher school, learning all this stuff with explosives. So the guys are now uh, depending on me not to blow us up and to do put the right amount of charge on a door or whatever it is that we need to, to blow up or make entry into. So there's a lot of other things you need to do. Um, but that's a very long way of answering that question, I know. But I feel so fortunate that I had that early experience with the martial arts because still to this day and during BUDS, I would think back to some of that early jujitsu training and think about being on that mat and having a fresh person come in and just roll and roll and roll and that person gets up and leaves and another fresh person comes in and you're rolling like that's some of the hardest training that i ever did and that's like mid 90s right there and i still think about that today as being a very formative time for me because it gave me that base it gave me that confidence um it, it gave me that, that problem solving ability it gave me that that ability to deal with somebody that close to interpersonal violence and not have that be something that i was just completely scared of not necessarily that you're ever going to be comfortable with it but it's a it's something that you're not scared of you're not afraid to engage um and so i think all those things were extremely valuable and all that bled over it wasn't necessarily just only stuff that i got on the seal teams all that early training bled over into my writing uh and that jujitsu so i am dated on my jujitsu because i haven't done it for a while so for those jujitsu things i do text jocko and uh be like hey <laughs> Bro, if you're in Virginia Beach in like 2002 and you need to go train somewhere, like who would you train with? And hey, does this sound right? So I do uh, throw those things off people that actually know what they're doing and have made it uh, like their life's work and study to be able to do that stuff. Like same thing with the the sailing portion in True Believer. Uh, oh. Like I sailed a little bit. I can do like a laser, you know, a little thing like that. But uh, but going across the Atlantic. I don't know what I'm doing. So I reached out to, to two uh, very good sailors, one being Jimmy Spithill, who uh, won the America's Cup. Uh, and he's just an amazing guy. He's been a dear friend over the years. And uh, I'm like, bro, does this sound right to you? And so he gives me his feedback. So I always reach out to the experts. Same thing with the Gulfstream, G550 and Savage Sun, those things they're jumping out of in the in the book. Yeah. Uh, I sent it to Gulfstream. And uh, one of the guys at Gulfstream was a big fan of the first uh, two novels. And so he's talking to me about the, the plane and making sure I got things right. I, I just talked to him today. He's like, no, you don't measure things in knots. I had it in knots for some reason. He's like, we do it in mock. And here's, it's like a mock 1.2 or something. Um, so, so I reach out to the people that really know what they're doing for a lot of that stuff. That's well, it's, it definitely worked because I totally had the belief that you are, you know, like you were saying, like a ninja. <laughs> Do you know well, what I mean? I'm a little dated. Like, I'm a little dated. Uh, well dated but yeah. it definitely worked. For someone, again, that knows a little bit, I was like, yeah, Jack knows. Jack knows enough 
that he's made it enough. seem legit. I know enough to be uh, dangerous, probably more to myself these days. Uh, but as <laughs> I was getting out of the teams, uh, also I was back at uh, our training command during my last uh, year or two in, and that's when I had time to, to write the book and uh, and that sort of thing. So I started getting back into jiu-jitsu then, so I was going during my lunch break, and there was a group of guys that got together uh, and, and trained uh, during the last few years in. So I've been, you know, here and there over the years, I've dabbled, but uh, and then my kids got, I've got my kids into it really early, so they've been uh, they've been into it for a while. I'm not into it right now, but they they were. Um, so it's such a valuable thing, I think, to get kids mm-hmm. into because yeah, there's so uh, many life lessons that jujitsu incorporates. Most important one probably being uh, either win or you learn, and uh, it's just a good way to look at at life because you're going to get knocked down. Like you're not going to win every time you roll, no chance. Yeah. And uh, same thing in life, like you're not going to win every time you go out. Every venture, you're not going to be a success. Uh, you're going to learn along the way, and that's what's the important part. Uh, so, and jujitsu really teaches that and um, and reinforces it over and over and over again. As you guys know, uh, every time you hit that mat, you're going to learn something and uh and just like in life that's what's the most important part is then learning those things but then not just learning them uh, but applying them going forward so applying what you learn the next time you're on the mat or if it's life applying it the next time you go out and it's not doing making the same mistakes over and over again um so it's all about building that uh that base and then moving forward so um so i'm a huge fan of jujitsu in general yeah absolutely um you know, we, you know, we've said this multiple times now. There's, you know, we've learned something from everybody that we spoke to just doing this. You know, just oh, yeah. uh, the ability to listen uh, and actually take down uh, notes about what you want to ask somebody next. So you, you know, you know, with anything, if you're doing it well or with passion, you know, because the way you spoke about jujitsu there was with a lot of passion. You know, you could tell that it's something that you really like. So. If you do something with passion, you know you, you you will get better. You know if you if you really like it, it's um yeah. Um, I know I love all that stuff. And same thing like in Jeet Kune Do back in the day, they were doing a lot of those Filipino martial arts I mentioned. And so you're doing the stick work and you're doing blade work like with machete, and then you're using the uh, smaller blade and learning all those angles and just how to they, they're like maybe different strike with a stick than you would with a blade, uh, but they're the angles are the same or similar and mm-hmm. so being able to incorporate that and they're the same ones that you can use also without something in your hand or with a pen or whatever it might be so i i yeah i, I credit that time on the mat that time studying martial arts um and then not just going and repeating what someone else does but also studying like hey where did these things come from um like what was going on in the world where people were coming up with this stuff whether it was in the philippines or in japan or in china or wherever wherever it was uh western boxing western wrestling what was going on why were there these rules in place or was it meant to simulate something else um and if and do i need to discard some of this stuff because their rules that were put in place at a certain time because of what was happening in the world. So really the intellectual side of it and studying where it came from, why it was developed, and then taking those and applying them in a modern context, uh, like in a parking garage uh, at night um, with multiple attackers or something like that. Like, how do you apply some of those things to that situation? Um, so, so I, I was just, I've always been fascinated with that. And I think it really helped along the way uh, in the SEAL teams. And then also now as I write, and I think through uh, how to fight, um, and what someone's background is that he's bringing to that fight. Um, cause I can't have just somebody that's never studied fighting or thought about violence all of a sudden, uh, in a fight with someone who has and come out on top, like, no, they're going to get destroyed. Um, so, so and, and a lot of books don't, don't do that. Cause the, you know, the authors haven't really spent that time studying 
interpersonal violence. Um, and uh, so it, it's just something that that I bring to the page because it's I'm passionate about it. I'm fascinated with it. It's uh, something I've studied my entire life and it's just a part of me. It's not something that I like feel like I need to go out and now learn so I can put it in a book. No, it is the book. Like this is th these books are are me. They're my experience and they're that experience with violence. Uh, and I think a lot of people are surprised by that when they when they turn these pages because it is so personal and that does come across in the in the reading or in the narration. Um, it's not just that I talked to somebody that was a sniper in Ramadi in 2006. Uh, no, I can take that experience and I can apply that to being behind the glass and pressing the trigger in a fictional sense. So uh, so it's not just the rolling and jujitsu, it's all the other parts as well. Now you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned boxing. That's uh, my first love. Um, what did you do in terms of in terms of boxing, Jack? Yeah, so I uh, I trained. In, uh, I, I didn't do amateur bouts. I did like like a, uh, a one that was amateur sanctioned or something like that, but uh, not a real like amateur bout. So I just, I trained with these guys that were hungry, these guys that were um, coming up and that was going to be their kind of like their, their way out almost. Um, it was going to be their ticket maybe. And so I just got in there, got in the mix with them and gosh, Western boxing, if you do two things, it's, or three things, uh, you know, Western boxing, Thai boxing and jujitsu. Like if you're going to study three things now, most gyms incorporate all of those, but, uh, but the boxing for me, um, and of course with Jeet Kune Do, you're adding, you're adding a lot of elbows, knees, headbutts type things, but you know, having that jab, having, having that cross, you know, all, all those basics, like every, <laughs> every guy needs to know those things, knows how to do that. Needs to keep your, keep your arm up. Needs to cover that jaw. Needs to keep your elbows in like those basics, like that's basic dude stuff that you need to do to protect this valuable gift of life. Like we're given this gift and it's our responsibility to defend it. Uh, not to hope that someone else is going to allow us to live. No. Uh, and then you have a family or you have a girlfriend, you have kids. Like that is your responsibility to take care of them. What does that mean? Well, at its base level, that means you're putting food on the table and you're defending them. You're learning to fight. Uh, and that's just like, that's the base that allows you to go forward and do everything else. But, uh, we're still connected. Like there's a very, very slim part of human history have we been able to not be good at those things have we been able to survive by going to the grocery store or calling the police if there's an issue uh that is a, the smallest portion of human history uh the rest of it you had to be good at the hunt you had to be able to put food on that table you had to be able to defend the tribe defend yourself defend the family uh, so it's in us it's innate in all of us we're just kind of removed from it at this stage because we can be because we can, we can allow ourselves to get soft and you might make it through life just fine like that today. Uh, but if something happens and you're in a situation where you need to defend yourself or your family members, well, if you haven't tapped in kind of to the, those, those primal skills that you used to have to have to survive and to prevail more importantly, then you're going to be in a lot of trouble. So I think it's in all of us. And just some of us identify that early on. Some of us come to it after we're in a bad situation. Some of us just stumble into the realization that maybe it's something we need to be able to do later in life. But for me, it's just always, always been there. But uh, to go back to the boxing piece, like that's a staple, like you have to be able to do these certain things. Uh, and also it's a great, it's a great workout too. So a lot of people come to it through yeah. that. Um, like being on the mat and being in the ring in particular sparring, like those are two of the toughest things physically that one can do. No yeah, doubt. Yeah, 100%. We, uh, we had that, uh, thrown into uh, stark realization because when Scotland went into lockdown, all our gyms closed 
and then for a short time window they reopened and I had kind of kidded myself that I'd kept myself in shape during the early part of lockdown and uh, the first week back on the mat I realised how useless I would have been in a real combat situation because my gas tank disappeared in about 32 (laughs) seconds and I was literally just like I'm just going to have to turtle for four and a half minutes and hope I make it to the end of this round and all that beat bullshit that people say about oh that wouldn't work in the streets I would just stand up absolute horseshit until you've been in that position and you're completely exhausted you, you can't just stand up you would you would 100% tap to Khabib do you know what I mean just because you're wearing a tap out shirt and eating hot wings in a bar <laughs> that doesn't mean you're going to be able to fight off Khabib when he kicks off but it, it's so true yeah. you know until you're in that circumstance you don't know you've never been tested I was um you know I was I was laugh you know you know I had a, I had a, a you know quite a few uh, amateur boxing bouts and nice. uh, you know, people. You know, it was hilarious when people people had these ideas about being able to fight. It's like until you know when the referee pulls you together and you look <laughs> into a guy's eyes and he's trained to punch your teeth out of your head. Um, I don't think people realise how how difficult that is. And then you know, I thought you know, they, there's there's no there's no place to go. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, I know people that have left the ring because they got hit and they didn't like it. But you can't, you know, you can't. A man can't do that. You have to, yeah. you know. Like, you and know, there's something different about those bouts. Like I said, I had the one amateur sanctioned bout, so it wasn't really real. One, it was just like the same rules, and there was a crowd and everything. But man, that was so different being in there and having that crowd around and that energy from the crowd, everybody yelling. Like to this day, I still remember it. I didn't box as well as I did in training, just sparring. Like I was much better. Uh, and then I got in that ring and I was good. I won, but it was still, it was tough and that was a different dynamic having all those eyeballs on you and having that energy from the crowd and having those screams but being staying focused on destroying that person in front of you um so i didn't get distracted by all that but it was different it was a, just a different environment so it was that was wild yeah i know um i had uh right at the end of my amateur career i had one international uh boat wow. in scotland versus norway and that was a different thing again because there was a realization that holy shit, I'm now I'm representing my country. Fuck, like fuck, you know. There was, you know, we got you know there was there, there was pipes there and all sorts of Scottish That's stuff. That's awesome. And uh, that was a uh, that was a uh, that was something. Um, that was a different kind of like it, it was almost like a I've kind of uh, you know I've kind of made it now. But then, you know then. You know, <laughs> then you know the, the bell goes, and you you know the first round round starts, and uh, you go, "Holy shit, this guy's really, really good." Now that guy actually boxed um, uh, Kai Robin Havner. I think he fights for a world title. Uh, maybe in any this, maybe next year. I think he's got a, a world title fight. Uh, nice guy. Um, although you know, what was quite funny as I've, I think I've told this to Ali privately before. As um, you know, he he was taller. He's you know, I'm only six foot. He was like six three. Uh, and this is at 200 pounds and in the third round i hurt him and he kept putting his head down and he did it three or four times and i i know you'll understand this so i you know the red mist came over and I, for a split second he put his head down and it was like a very i didn't know how to guillotine so i tried to kill it like what now you call a guillotine but i literally for three seconds was trying to kill him yeah yeah <laughs> I was like, fuck. And um, yeah. you know, if you had the guillotine, I would have, you know, he would have been unconscious. But um, yeah, it's quite, it was quite funny. I wish I wish I knew some jiu-jitsu back then. And uh, 
you know, I would have put him to sleep, but I didn't, and I got my ass kicked. So it was like, <laughs> <laughs> good, you know. Great. Yeah, it's humbling too. You know, it's yeah, humbling, and it, it gives you the ability to, you know, in, maybe not when you're younger, but certainly as you as you get older and and wiser and turn your experience into to wisdom, which is also very important, uh, is to be able to to walk away from things and to not let something things bother you that maybe when you were 21 i wanted to test yourself or 18 and wanted to twist yourself or whatever uh allows you to be like all right just walk away like it's, it's okay especially today like today like back in the early 90s you know nobody knew this stuff but now you have no idea there's so many people training so many people fired up about it so many people watching mma so it's you have no idea who you're fighting these days I, so uh that's just a knot i always say you know you know you know when people are you know out in a bar or whatever and the guys are you know, you know whether it's girls or you know friends of mine who don't fight, and they're looking at the guy who's got the really tight shirt on. He's obviously on steroids. You know, tattoos up his neck, and they're all going, oh, "Man, that guy looks that guy looks tough, man. Maybe we should leave this bar." And you go, "That guy doesn't know fucking anything." <laughs> and then, you know, then you see like a little guy who's like five foot eight, and you see the cauliflower not on his ears, and you go, "Yeah, this is the one. He's the one. <laughs> He's the one you yeah. need to be. He's not scared of that big guy." Um, it's exactly. quite how you know expectations um uh, and reality are, are way apart in terms of you know people's ability to fight it's quite funny um so yeah it's uh but yeah it's uh, you know you know i love martial arts uh you know uh, you know any fight sport uh you know i tried a little bit of mma sparring this year um didn't particularly like getting hit in the face anymore so, <laughs> so yeah. i'll probably stick to, to just jiu-jitsu but um yeah. Yeah, it's so much fun. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, one one of the other things you know I wanted to I wanted to ask you about, and this is we'll lose Ali here very briefly. Was uh, your love of Land Cruisers? Ah, yes, a car guy as well. Nice, nice, yeah. So I think it all started back in Afghanistan uh, when I saw those Hiluxes, and I saw because here we can't get Hiluxes in the United States. You know, I have a Tacoma over here, but uh, back then in the early days in Afghanistan, they weren't um, purpose-built Hiluxes yet, meaning they didn't come out of some like factory with armor in them and like outfitted with superchargers and suspension and all the rest of it. It was just a stock land crew or a stock Hilux that we had our mechanics then add all this stuff to and put armor plating in and then do the suspension to be able to carry that weight and all the rest of it. But I saw those Hiluxes be able to do some amazing things overseas. And I was like, oh, there must be a reason why all these people are using Hiluxes. And then I started noticing them in other places and then noticing the Land Cruisers. And I was like, wow, look at this Land Cruiser. And then looked into the history of the Land Cruiser and uh, just really became just enamored with it. So it was like the Hilux was my gateway drug, obviously more modern vehicle. Uh, and then looking at that lineage, that Toyota lineage through the Land Cruiser, I just, that became my thing. So uh, so I have, a, I have one and it's the base uh, for the, Land Cruiser in the novels, um, and yeah, it's just I, I, yeah, I just love them. And also, there's this whole community of Land Cruiser aficionados that are drawn to the books because of the Land Cruiser. So it's uh, so that's kind of cool as well. Um, so, so yeah, I've just uh, been a fan forever, and I'm gonna I have a uh, FJ62, and I'm gonna add to that. I'm gonna get an FJ40, which is the Jeep one looking one, um, and uh, add an 80 series, and just kind of have a start start building the collection. Those things will go absolutely anywhere and uh, run literally till the end of time. 
Yeah, uh, and I love using them as character development tools. So that's kind of how I use gear in the novels. Because when I see somebody, uh, like what they're wearing, um, like what belt they have on, uh, what pistol they're carrying, what kind of holster they have, what kind of blade they have, uh, that tells me a lot about them. And I can make judgments based on those observations. Uh, same thing with with vehicles. And I think a lot of that comes from being a child of the 80s. Like every single TV show had a vehicle in it. Yep. And uh, or something like the Airwolf had the Airwolf helicopter. Yeah. Uh, we had the we had the Fall Guy truck. You had the Simon and Simon Dodge van. You had Knight Rider. Um, you had all the Magnum's Ferrari. You had all these like characters that were vehicles. So uh, it was very natural for me to incorporate those into the novel. And then. Also, I use the the Land Rover Land Cruiser debate to develop characters as well. So, mm-hmm. one character likes Land Rover, like Defender One Ten. The other character, uh, James Reese, the protagonist, likes Land Cruisers, and so they get to talk about that. Same thing: nine mil versus forty five, uh, leather holster versus Kydex. Like all these things, modern Solomon boots versus an old Courtney boots from uh, from Africa. Um, so, I use all those different things to develop someone's character. Just like kind of what beer somebody has, if they order, they all have a Coors Light, or they order some sort of a microbrew or whatever it is like that tells me something about them uh what whiskey they grab they they when they look at the shelf like that tells me something about them uh and so i use all that to develop my characters i I would assume that the character that drives a land rover would be would be pissed off a lot because it obviously breaks down all the time right that's in the first that's in one of the first chapters (laughs) where i talk about it yeah yeah i use the joke in there yeah i I possibly know that (laughs) he says the protagonist is like hey that uh that defender's been sitting there for like 10 minutes you might want to check the oil it probably all came out so uh, i use use all the stuff in there which is is fun yeah uh you know I've, i've had one and they break down a lot <laughs> so yeah, uh, look cool. Uh, Defender one ten, uh, not the new ones, but the old ones. That man, the Defender nineties. They all they look. They're so it's such an iconic looking vehicle. Yeah, some now there's a you know there's a few companies in um, in the UK uh, really do some nice work on them. Sorry, yeah. Ali, you, Ali, can you, okay. you can go for a cup of coffee just now? <laughs> he doesn't even have a uh, he doesn't even have a driving license. I don't, uh, I don't even have a driving license. But uh, yeah, there's, there's some companies do. Um, do some real nice modifications on them. Um, oh yeah, so, I think I follow most of those guys on Instagram. Yeah, uh, amazing, yeah. really cool stuff. So, um, you know, I would like to get, um, I like to, you know, climb a lot of hills and 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 you know do some wild swimming, and I, I you know I really need to get something kitted out so I can get deeper and further, uh, nice. uh, into the into the Scottish uh, Highlands. So awesome. I'm, I'm going to have to build at some point. Um, you know, I might try and build something myself because I'll you know. I love doing that as well. So, one of the things actually I wanted to circle back to, can it can it ties together again here? Um, you know, when you're talking about uh, earlier on, but you know, we're talking about um, you know your ability to provide for the family and stuff and all this stuff. So, uh, at the you know when we first went into lockdown, one of the first it, one of the things that I thought about was, I knew where I can get what you know things got really bad. I knew where I can get water. I knew I could hike and get water because I knew where a fresh stream was. The only thing that I couldn't do is hunt. Mm. And I know that's something that you're big into. So that's something um, I will have to look at. Genuinely, I've, you know, I said this to Ali, you know, yeah. um, I'm going to have to learn how to hunt because I, I don't like the idea of, and it's it's probably getting a little ridiculous, but then maybe not, you know, the idea of not having food. Um, so, if it, you know, if I get to learn to hunt, then I don't have that issue anymore. So yeah, that's something I'm going to do. So I know you're a, you 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 take the the kids. Yeah, uh, that's uh, pretty cool. I like that. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to look into some of that. And we can't yeah. bow hunt. We can't bow hunt. 
Scotland. In Scotland, it has to be rifle yeah. hunting. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. illegal to bow hunt in Scotland. Bow hunt. But, um, and it's a, I don't know yet because I haven't done it, but it's a, a real mission to get a gun. <laughs> yeah, that's what I understand. I haven't done it yet. I need to. I want to get up there actually and and hunt up there as well. I haven't really I haven't done any hunting in uh, in any European countries, um, but I want to get over there because each country has its own like traditions and um, yeah. and they're and they're all a little bit different. They'll vary, and they uh, I just love the history behind some of those traditions. So uh, I do want to get over there and do some hunting. But yeah, I'm going next week for for mule deer in Colorado. Mm. Um, I do take the kids. Uh, I think it's a great way to get away today especially from all those electronic devices and distractions um because you're competing against that now yeah. once you let them in once you crack that door oh my gosh you know they've, they've got you I and mean, there's a reason i mean they're definitely addictive um so but you go to a couple places uh so we like to do a river trip every year meaning we put a raft in on a river and get to the bottom of a canyon and there's no cell signal so by default and i'm guilty of it too like i'm always working building building the readership uh engaging with people on social channels and that sort of thing um because it allows me to do what i love which is writing and i do sincerely appreciate uh everybody that took a risk on me as a, as a new author and that took the time out of their day to reach out uh, so i try to get back to everybody um but at the same time when i'm at the bottom of that river canyon I can't tell the kids, oh, hey, hold on just one second. I just got to return this real quick. Hold on. Like, that is not, you can't do that because there's no cell signal. Same thing with a lot of the places that we hunt. There's no cell signal. And you're out there, you're together. Maybe you're in a tree stand, maybe you're doing some spot and stock, but you're away from the electronic devices. You're out there, you're doing something primal, uh, visceral that they'll remember forever. And also something that allows them to provide for to the family, uh, to contribute. To the family so we're just not sitting down to dinner and throwing some stuff out there and eating and then getting back to whatever we were doing uh no we're putting some stuff on the table that they killed out there and then we got that meat and we brought it back and it's in our freezer and now we're talking about we're remembering that elk hunt as we're having that dinner um so and they get to feel like oh well mom or dad didn't just run out to the grocery store and get this i did this like I took this animal down and then we went out there in the field and we, uh, we field dressed this whole thing. And then we took it to the processor or we took it home and we took whatever it is. Uh, they're a part of it. They're part of that circle, um, rather than just, uh, they're a participant in it and a contributor yeah. to it, not just a consumer of mm. something. Uh, and there's a big difference there, I think. Uh, and it also is a big part of being self-reliant. And for those, for the, for the kids, especially it's, uh, it gives them, I think, uh, a, a greater sense of self in that they're, they are connected to the past, to that tradition, uh, to something that's useful that they can pass on to their kids, uh, a memory that they can have of you. And it's not necessarily only of the hunt. It's the things you talk about while you're out there in the field, disconnected from all those distractions that we have these days from that electronic leash that we have these days with our cell phones. Um, so there's so many benefits to it that are uh, more than just, oh, look, I got, you know, we got an elk or we got a deer or we got a rabbit or whatever it is. Uh, no, it's that whole experience of being out there together that they'll remember forever and hopefully pass on to their kids uh, to allow them to be self-reliant as well. And at the same time, you're learning safety with firearms um, that, that's, uh, so you're learning so many, there's so many positives to being out there. There are very few negatives, if any at all, that I can even think of uh, attached to hunting and bringing kids out there to be a part of that process and that circle and that respect for the animal that you're putting on the, the dinner table. That's something you don't get when you just rush down to uh, the local grocery store and grab a, a frozen chicken off the shelf that is, does not look like a chicken anymore. Yeah. yeah. 
doesn't it's um yeah it's, you know uh, I, I haven't been hunting yet but um i spend quite a lot of time in the in the, the you know the highlands climbing our hills and stuff alone and it's something that um i love so much peace in it and so much uh a lot of time for like self-reflection and uh and character building um and i've said yeah. to you know, ali you know i think we're uh, it might have been Bert Soren we're talking about this and you know one of my favorite things to do is uh is be alone on a hill at night just a head torch and uh it's uh it's uh, I, I can't even describe it you know this is good job I'm not an author uh there's a, there's a way that you know it's such a a grounding feeling of of just being at peace with everything around about you um and also if you make a mistake uh, that could be it. <laughs> yeah. That's right. right for that error. And if if something does happen when you you know in the wilds, nature doesn't care. The world keeps That's right. You know something will eventually That's eat right. you. And uh, yeah. yeah, I love yeah. that. I love that stuff. I really I really do like it. So hopefully yeah. I'll uh, get some uh, some hunting done at some point, and uh, hopefully come you know add another um, strength to the bow, as they say. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. It's like the, you know, the mountains are neutral, like they do not care. Um, yeah. but they call also, they call a lot of us. So yeah. it's, uh, just getting out there and a lot of it, I think it's just getting away from all these things today, all these distractions, uh, and allows you to it's kind of, it's meditative being out there. And then also knowing that, Hey, if something does happen, you roll an ankle, you break a leg, whatever. Well, once again, you better be able to take care of yourself. You better be self-reliant. You better be prepared as best you can. Uh, and then once again, well, if you make it out of those, some of those situations, take those lessons and apply them going forward. So the next time you're out there and roll the ankle, maybe you're a little more prepared. Um, so that's just all, all part of life. Um, I always have a, you know, quite a, a comprehensive kit when I go out, but you know, ever since, you know, we spoke to Clint Emerson on the podcast mm -hmm. and I bought both, you know, all the editions of his uh, hundred deadly skills and it was reading mm -hmm. that. So one of the things I did add was, a, a you know, Ali's got a, a Leatherman, so I ended up buying a Leatherman, uh, you know, to put in my bag just, um, just in case. It's another thing that you add. You know, you listen to these things and you, you go, okay, well, if, you know, if Clint Emerson says have a have, have a good multi-tool in your bag, you should probably have yeah. a good multi-tool in your bag. It's probably not a bad idea. So, um, I'm, about yeah. I'm, a, I'm about to continue the Leatherman tradition. I've got a three kids, Jack, two teenage sons and a 11-year-old daughter. And my son, my oldest son, turns 18 in January. Nice. And when I was 18, I bought myself a Leatherman Wave, one of the old school Leathermans. You're talking 24 years ago, man. Jesus. That well, the Wave's my old. favorite. I still yeah. love the Wave. So yeah. I've said to Adam for about the last four or five years, when you turn 18, I'm going to buy you a Leatherman so that oh, you've cool. got the multi tool. And then Logan, who's my other son, he turns 18 the following year. So he'll get presented with one as well. Um, and then I just need to decide what I'm going to get for my daughter when she turns 18. Leatherman. <laughs> Leatherman as well. Get her one yeah, yeah. as well. Even, exactly. Yeah, as you were saying, even getting the kids away from the electronic devices and taking them mm -hmm. out for a while, my daughter fights it. <laughs> you know, she doesn't want to at first, but once you get her away and you get her into that bit of space and a bit of nature, at first yeah. she's still a little bit. I don't know. Do you have the word stroppy over there in America? No. No, I it's like so. uh, it's like kind of like a mild tantrum, a little bit petted lip. Oh, okay. So she gets <laughs> a bit stroppy, and okay. then. I'm and gonna start using that because uh, yeah, our daughter. That's, that's your one. That's your one. <laughs> yeah, that's your one. Um, she gets after that 10, 15 minutes, and then she's like, 
she's she's present. Do you know what I mean? She she yeah. disconnects from everything. It's such a massive difference. A massive difference. One of the things that I liked um, uh, from the you know your interview with uh, on Joe Rogan was um, you know you're talking about you know your your daughter shot a, a, an elk and it was just one of those things you go that's that seems crazy you know it, it was is she, 10, <laughs> is she ten years old is that, is that no no sorry she, she was, was ten when she got her first elk and then uh, she got her second elk uh, when she was thirteen I think or maybe twelve but anyway she has two amazing elk now uh, and. Yeah, she has so we have these great memories, these great photos of it, and and uh, you know when she gets uh, gets older, she'll always always have that. So it's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing. And then to be able to to share that around the dinner table, it's um, yeah, there's yeah. someone who benefits. As somebody that doesn't have any kids, um, I have a niece and a nephew that I, I try and pass my wisdom on to. But uh, it must be quite comfort comforting as well, knowing that you have a daughter who's absolutely capable of of. Uh, handling herself and, and being self-sufficient right yeah yeah no exactly and she uh, she got a new i got well i introduced her to jiu-jitsu very early on so she was doing jiu-jitsu up until the last uh, until a few years ago um but she was very serious about it for quite some time so at least there's that base there uh she does some other things now she kind of grew out of uh grew out of that but uh maybe she'll find her way back to it at some point but at least she has that foundation yeah. yeah, she'll come back to it definitely. Um, so that's uh, you know one of the one of the cool things is you you'll, you'll always circle back to these things because at some point somebody you know it might be a UFC fighter you know a Ronda Rousey type and go oh, I like that. that looks <laughs> yeah. cool. So, uh, but yeah, we're um, are we we over an hour now, Ali? Are you just about heading into there? Are you still okay for time, or do you need to get away? Jack? Yeah, yeah, that's yep. Yeah, I'm good for for okay. now, and then. Uh, yeah, I think I hear if you hear anything outside, if the kids just got home, I think from from school Fridays are their their half days. But uh, it's time to start uh, juggling kids here soon and putting the edits on this uh, this fourth novel. Uh, put that one to rest and then finish up the last two scripts for the Amazon series and then jump right into book number five and start nice. getting that thing uh, outlined and ready to go. And then uh, after I get that outline, kind of the beginning, middle, and end. Don't not not necessarily knowing what every chapter is going to be, but have that flow down, know how I want to start it, know um, that theme and know where it's going to end up and then get it as outlined as I can and then hop right in and uh, yeah. start knocking that thing out. One, one of the things I've been freaking Chris out with over the last couple of weeks when I've been oh. rereading your, I'd read your first novel, The Terminal <laughs> List, about a year ago, um, about a year ago maybe, and then I've I reread them. Uh, and, and read books two and three as well just recently uh the enhanced interrogation scenes in the terminal list and in savage sun now i thought terminal list was bad with the <laughs> piano wire and then i got into savage sun and you got into the bit with the uh, capacian uh, that's kind of the that's how we pronounce over here yep. um ground it down injected into the eyeball injected into the bladder that was <laughs> don't give away too many don't give away too I much no no that's i won't give away any more than that but when I was reading it, especially the second one in Savage Son, I was I was cringing at the thought of that. I mean, the first one was just that, oh my god! Like <laughs> as I say, I won't give too much away for anyone that's planning to read the books. But it, it made my knees tuck up to my chest, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then the one in Savage yeah. Son, it was savage. I yeah, I do get a lot of questions about about that one, um, and I keep exactly kind of where I came up with that uh, to myself. But uh, I need I, I wanted because 
I wanted the violence to be thoughtful. That was very important to me. Um, and then Alex, because I've read so many where you just shoot somebody in the leg or, you know, whatever, you know, shoot them in the other leg or, you know, I wanted the violence to be thoughtful because they were going to be violent. Um, but I wanted it to be thoughtful violence. Uh, so in the first one, I've explored that, of course, second one and third one, fourth one as well here that I'm just finishing up. But, uh, but I kind of wanted that to be a hallmark of the books uh, is that each one, there's something that people haven't seen before in that realm or thought about before in that realm. And uh, so, so that anyway, so, so far anyway, it's, it's, it's worked. And that particular chapter that you're talking about in the Savage Sun is one that comes up quite frequently in interviews because uh, I, I haven't had anybody tell me that, oh yeah, I've heard of that before, or uh, I thought of that before, or like no one's ever said that to me. Uh, there are probably a few people out there that maybe have, but uh, very few. And I think for most people, it's uh, it's a little eye-opening. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> and I've told, I've t- I told my two teenage sons about it, and particularly the first one in Terminal List. My 16-year-old son just just was horrified at the thought of it being a 16 year old guy and <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 that was like a crazy one I, and i yeah i don't want to ruin too much about that scene nope. it's a good it's a, it's a good one. <laughs> oh man yeah that was uh it'd be interesting if they bring that into the uh second season of the because uh, the first season of the terminal list is well it's just the terminal list and uh, i guess they if there's a second season uh they will they'll base that off how well the first one does but if there's a second season and it's based on true believer it'll be interesting to see if they do the uh the piano wire deal in that one it's, uh, i haven't seen that on film before no definitely not definitely not <laughs> that's uh, so savage it's so um <laughs> one of the other things i was going to ask you jack and i've noticed when you've been on the podcast a couple of times you picked a mug up I suppose the word I'm going to use is the fetish, the fetishization of coffee. Is that a team's thing? Because we heard, I just listened to uh, the Black Rifle Coffee Company on Joe Rogan a couple of weeks back, and they were talking about you, and you seem to be, shall I say, infamous about <laughs> your coffee. Is that a fair phrase to use? Yeah, is that something that, probably. again, is that a bit of Reese that's in you, or you're in Reese at, at that yeah, thing? that's it. So it was also important for me to, to humanise the character, um, the protagonist of the novels, and not just have someone that was uh, like a, a robot or good at everything. So uh, he is not good at the surveillance side of the house because the surveillance was something we kind of did here and there in the SEAL teams, but not the way that he has to do it in the book. And there are some teams now that focus more on that, uh, you know, developing human Titan networks. So doing like the human intelligence side of the house, building those networks up. So uh, since September 11th, uh, that's become important, but it wasn't something that I was really intimately involved with. So it's not something that I am I am good at. Um, and so I wanted my character to not be good at a few things. I also wanted to, to humanize him a little bit because most of the people that are protagonists that have the backgrounds that my character does in the novels, uh, both in movies and in books, they like their coffee black you know that's just the man thing to do well i happen to like my coffee with a little honey and cream like that's just how it is and uh you know it, it drives the black raffle coffee guys crazy because when they make coffee it's so good like it's it's, it's amazing how they do it and and uh the pour over and the, the whole deal but uh you know for me i throw it it's in the grinder it's in the machine and it comes out and we're juggling kids and it's chaos all the time and i stir in my honey and my cream so i wanted to make the the character a little more relatable and he likes his coffee that way too so uh so i brought that to the character in the novel so yes this one right here there's coffee uh, there's coffee in here there's cream in here and there's honey in here uh we'll, we'll see i i love honey and tea exactly. uh, 
I love honey and tea, not in coffee, but uh, <laughs> love it in tea. Uh, you know, some some you know some nice honey and uh, and tea is is a you know that's like the eighth wonder of the world. It's, it's one of those beautiful things. It's like a, a secret that nobody doesn't know. You know, and I don't. You know, people people might shit on me a little bit because I like honey in my tea, but eh, I like honey in my tea. It's nice. I get it. Uh, yeah. No, I get it. One of those things when 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 people talk about you know the way that the guys make that you know any of these guys who make really good coffee and it seems like it's one of those things where i guess it's the same with anything but it, you know you, it's just coffee how do you make coffee better it's just it's one of the you know it's when people go you know running is running or, or you know swimming swimming or you know jiu-jitsu it's just fighting like how can you not be better at it it's like it doesn't make sense until uh, these guys like until you actually seen them do it and you drink the coffee you then you'd go holy shit this is unbelievable it seems you know yeah. Like I, I don't and understand. And then you really notice bad coffee. It's kind of like wine, and that yeah, 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 um, yeah, if you yeah. never have good wine, like you're fine. Like you're, you're, but as soon as someone introduces you to good wine, then it's very difficult to go back to horrible wine because uh, you didn't know it was horrible before. Same yeah. thing with coffee. It's just coffee. It was burnt. Maybe you're in the navy. You get it in the chief's mess or whatever, and it's just you know this stuff that just comes out of this thing, and it's dark, and you drink it, and it keeps you awake. And okay. But then someone introduces you to actual coffee and how how they roast it, how they flip it. Like when you're getting some of this mass-produced stuff, uh, they just need to get it out there, right? They need to put it in these cans and get it out there. So they're putting it through very fast under these crazy high heats. They're burning it essentially, and so that's what you get in most coffee that we you know grew up with. Uh, but now when you do really good coffee you have people like evan hafer at black rifle that really know what they're doing and they get the temperatures just right and they flip the beans over and they're not burnt uh and it's a totally different experience than just getting quote unquote coffee uh from some of these bigger places so uh that artisan type coffee in these small batch roasters is so different than just getting a can off the shelf at the grocery store from some big company that you've heard of that just has to get it out there. And they're making a ton of money, so they're just burning it, getting it through the machines and putting it into these cans, and that's what they're doing. Uh, but if you never knew or never tasted the good artisan small batch roasted coffee, you wouldn't even know. Wait, so, <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> There's a couple of ways to go through life. You know, I cheap wine and burnt coffee, you know, you'll be, yeah. be happy as a clam as long as you never try good coffee and good wine. I feel this way now about um, cider. I don't even know, uh, you know, uh, you know, um, cider is really a big thing in America, but we have cider, you know, you know, quite a lot of cider in the UK, and I, I feel this way with cider. So people buy cider and they buy, you know, Magnus or, or Recorder Leg is one of these, you know, and they're just, you know, fruit flavored, sugary ciders. Yeah. Drink them, and go, oh, the cider's amazing. You like. That's not fucking cider. This is not cider. That's some proper yeah. cider. You know, you should be able to see bits of apple, and you could taste the. And I, I, I get really annoyed when people talk. You know, the same kind of idea. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah same uh, deal. Same yeah. deal. I mean, yeah, and with whiskeys and all that stuff too. You know, if you only just have one kind of whiskey that's not the best, you don't even know any better. So uh, my, yeah, my, it can save my, you a lot of money. I guess. My dad used to drink horrible coffee. He was in the Royal Navy for twenty-two oh, years. So he used to drink, he used to drink, out, as you say, out the, the kind of mess. And he used to drink out of a three and a half pint mug, three and a half pint of coffee. He used to drink about eight a day. So think about how much yeah. coffee. And he used to take it with milk and salt. He used to put salt, salt? in it because that was the Royal Navy tradition was to put salt in it. So he used to drink like coffee with like a splash of milk and a grind of salt into it. And that's how he would drink his coffee for years. 
And like say three and a half, three and a half pint mug. So that's, Dude, I'm going to put that in a book. That's fantastic. I've never heard of that before. Actually, I'm going to try it tomorrow. I'm going to put a little <laughs> salt in my coffee and a little milk and see what it's like. I'm 100% doing that tomorrow. That's, that's how, that was, awesome. that was, my dad was in the Navy 75 to 97. So he was like wow. a little bit old school Navy, Royal Navy particularly. And that was the old tradition that he'd been brought up with by the, the chiefs at the time, the, the uh, chief petty officers, was you had to have salt in your tea. I don't know if it maybe went back to the days of like scurvy and trying to get guys with I'm a certain level. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? One of those kind of things, who knows? Right. But yeah, for, and as far as I know, he still has shoot, uh, sorry, still has salt in his coffee. Interesting. I'm going <laughs> to check that out. I'm very curious now. We'll might do it right after we get off here. Yeah, <laughs> there will be an interesting backstory to that. I bet you, because you know there must be something. You yeah, go there back must to, be something exactly. I'll yeah. go back to pirate ships or something. Almost certainly. Yeah. Um, do you have? Uh, did you have much? Um, you know, dealings with our UK military guys and deployment. Uh, I worked next to uh, SAS in two thousand six in Baghdad. So um, I think I went out with. They came out with a group that I was working with at the time once. So we were in close proximity to one another. We had like we were, where we were set up there in Baghdad. It was pretty sweet little spot. So, um, uh, so they had a house, we had a house, uh, you know, our army special operations guys had a house. So we were all kind of like lined up there. And, uh, so yeah, so they were crushing it out there. So, um, uh, but yeah, but yeah, but not too much, not too much. Um, did some stuff with SBS, um, early on, I think 2004, maybe. Um, but yeah, those guys crush it you know i mean it's just amazing just man such a history and such tradition um, one of the things um you know we've had a, a couple of british guys on as well um and one of the things that you know they were saying is they don't have the kit that the americans have so they have to work a little bit harder uh to get the results you know you, you know you guys have you know I, I don't know because I haven't been there, but you know, you guys have a lot of kit, and our guys don't have <laughs> as much, so they have to, you know, they have to work uh, that little bit. I, yeah, you know, and it didn't used to always be that way. They used to have the kit, and we did not. Um, I remember wearing uh, GSG nine uh, German boots from Adidas uh, back in the like early or the, the late nineties, because uh, no one else really made like a running shoe ish boot ish type thing, uh, except for except for them from Adidas. Um, and then uh, some of the, I mean, really, uh, you know, a lot is based on on SAS, like our, our our Delta guys, you know, that their whole thing based on on SAS because the, the first commanding officer of that unit uh, went through SAS training. Um, and so he took those lessons and then brought them back to the, to the States to build our special operations capability because we didn't really have one. And then in the late, of course, late 60s into the 70s, into the early 80s, of course, with terrorism on the rise, that really a, a, a new threat, we weren't prepared to deal with it. We didn't have units that were uh, whose mission focus was the counter-terrorist mission. Um, and uh, Europe started dealing with that problem set well before we did, obviously. Um, so they developed the capability before we did. So um, so yeah, we started with, so all our lessons learned uh, back then came from really uh, European special operations units. And we just took and applied it to, to us in the US and applied it to some lessons from Vietnam. Uh, typically it was the Vietnam guys that were developing these units in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, so we have, uh, you know, we have definitely have a connected uh, heritage in that sense, no doubt about it. Uh, the, the guy who founded the SES, there's a monument to him 
uh, you know, just out towards uh, Dune. Have you been there, Ali? Have you? Yeah. you the, the monument is it is it David Sterling? David David Sterling, uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Sterling, uh, the old that's long his, range, uh, the old long range desert patrols in North Africa. That's right, that's right. It's his uh, it's his birthday on Sunday. Yeah. Um, so I like to uh, always do like a little history thing on on Instagram and uh, and Twitter and stuff. So it's uh, yeah, Jack R USA uh, uh, on Instagram. I try, try to do little history things here and there. And one of the things that I do is for his uh, his birthday. Yeah, I saw I'll the one there. today about Paris. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Yeah, one of the things I'll do, Jack, is the next time I'm passing out of that way for work, I'll stop and uh, I'll, I'll send you a picture of the monument. Oh, uh, awesome! That'd be awesome. I'll send you one. Uh, I don't know when I'll be out there, but you know, I'll be out there at some point and um, send you the yeah, because it's quite you know, he had quite a big impact on uh, special forces worldwide. So um, yeah, yeah, no doubt about yeah. it. Then he got into the, the you know the early stages of uh, what we'd call today contracting or private military companies after he left military service. So there's a whole uh, history there as well. But what a fascinating individual. Uh, he has a book called Rogue Heroes that's uh, fantastic about uh, about him and creating the uh, the SAS and uh, really that history of special operations. So uh, yeah, just an incredible guy, no doubt is, about that. Is, is that where you're interested in the, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but the sellout scouts, is that mm-hmm. come from your study of counterinsurgency and just military history in general? Because that's our, yep. our, our recurring theme throughout the book or books as well yep i've always been fascinated with that um fascinated with the tactical tracking side of the house the the history of uh of africa particularly from uh really the end of world war ii up through the the late 90s um mid 90s uh in particular but that period in the 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 60s and 70s um where you have those guys really developing those uh those uh pseudo terrorist operations counterinsurgency dealing with them taking their lessons learned and particularly in africa uh with the Salute scouts uh is taking that doing the man tracking uh and doing doing that better than anybody has ever done it before uh so i wanted to take some of that history and apply it to certain characters in the novels because it's it wasn't something that i'd seen explored in uh in books over here anyway um and and people love those characters i get 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 uh direct messages all the time from people saying they want to explore there's a family the hastings family is a is a family in the novels and uh they want more of, uh, of that background and it might be something I explore in in future novels. It was it was interesting because my wife's cousin um, was ma- or is married to a woman from Zimbabwe, um, and he spent twenty five years or so living in Zimbabwe, and they got forced off their farm, as you kind of mm-hmm. hint at in I think it's in the second book that you you kind of savage yeah 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 um, and you go through with the Hastings kind of and, and again not giving away too much from the third one. But how they then have to they all know how to defend the homestead that's right because because of what they've gone through again i won't give away you know hashtag no spoiler alerts but mm-hmm. um they, they know how to defend because of that experience in in zimbabwe with a you know under mugabe that's right and right and uh and some of that stuff i got from uh, there's a real person that i based that character on that uh that grew up in then rhodesia uh and then came to the united states and currently lives in montana uh and she lent me uh four or five different books from africa that really talk about that that history during that time period and when there's one line in the third novel where if you uh, remember that piece when uh the kind of the matriarch 
of the family is about to start defending the homestead. She's handing out the the weapons, yeah. and there's a line, and I and no one's really brought it up as being as saying, "Oh, that could never happen." And I expected it because it is such a powerful um, paragraph and a line, and it's a real line from somebody that was defending the homestead in Rhodesia. Um, she was a matriarch of the family. The uh, the husband was away uh, at war uh, elsewhere, and she was there defending the homestead. And uh, she said, "If you uh, if you die this day, die well." And uh, and it's a real thing. Like it, it was somewhat. I mean, it's incredible. So I took that and I applied it to, to fictional narrative, of course, but with someone that had a very a background uh, from that time and place. Mm. It's, um, yeah, I think um, it's. Uh, I've really, you know, as somebody who doesn't who doesn't read an awful lot, uh, it's really interesting to see the thought process. Um, you know, it's not something that's it's that's, that's thrown together um, quickly. It's something that you obviously think about uh, and plan and, and knit things together really, really well. Um, and obviously, have a lot of contacts. Um, we, you know, speak to people about certain things to get deep. The, these details, is, you know, like anything, if you're trying to armbar somebody, right? It's the details. It's the the, the details that make um, things believable and you know, obviously, wildly successful as well. I guess. Uh, so yes, it's, it's, it's nice oh, to appreciate see. that. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, yeah, I want to publish these at some point. Uh, there's been so much going on, I haven't had a chance. But um, for the, those fight scenes, when you're talking about those details, you know, I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of people that that live in these different realms. And uh, a really good buddy of mine has choreographed out these fight scenes for me. Like he lives and breathes combatives, but a lot of blade work. And so I'm like, hey. Bro, this is what I want to do. Here's the here's the outline. Like here's here's kind of how I want this to to go down. Um, and then he like will take a video and he'll put on his nods and in this room and he'll have somebody else in there and he'll go through the whole thing like for me and I can watch it over and over again like what I wanted to do and then I'll make little morphs here and there or whatever. Um, but uh, but I get to see it and replay it over and over as I write down so I can look for those details in what he's doing. So it's not just me in my mind thinking, how would I do this like that? So I can actually see it. Uh, so it's like choreographed, like a movie fight scene. And then I get that and I'm watching it on my phone because he sends it to me there. And then I'm taking that and applying those little details to the paragraphs as I'm writing these fight scenes. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. I like yeah. yeah. I'd like yeah. to publish those at some point when I get around to it. That would yeah. be cool. These details are really interesting. And it's, it's also nice to see, you know, how, how passionate you are about everything as well you know it's not um you know you know your fourth book's coming out and obviously it hasn't taken its toll at all you're still uh incredibly passionate about these things and it's always very nice to speak to somebody uh when they have a clear passion for something you know they're not just doing something to get paid or you know they really live it breathe it and uh, you know it's their baby and, and um you know they, yeah. they, they do it. it's really nice to see that from people Oh yeah, I mean that's that, that that passion for for service, that calling really. Both of these things have been callings, and I don't look at them as um, as jobs. Um, I've always looked. There's a reason we call it the profession of arms, not the career of arms. Uh, same thing. You don't really. It's a profession of writing. So I look at these things as professions rather than jobs, if that makes sense. And for me, there's a there's a difference. Um, and I've, I I felt that same passion. For, well, I feel that same passion for writing that I did for service in the SEAL teams and wanting to be the best operator in the SEAL teams. Well, I want to be the best writer I can be now. And I don't just want to recreate something that someone else has already done. I want to build 
on that legacy, on those giants that really uh, inspired me to take this path. And I look at it as my responsibility to move that ball forward, whether it's like, yeah, by a yard or by 50 yards or whatever it is, uh, by a degree maybe, uh, but move the genre forward in some way, shape or form. Uh, and uh, the initial way that I think that I've done that is through those real experiences downrange and applying them to that fictional narrative. But uh, for me, I'm not just trying to recreate what's already been done. Uh, I'm trying to move the ball a little bit forward so those people that now come behind me can do the same thing and keep moving the genre forward but what's important about that is to know the history and i think it'd be very difficult to just wake up one day and say you know what i'm gonna be a writer you know i should go back and reread and read some of these things um that got me here who are some of the giants in this uh this industry that uh that moved the ball forward on their own well i've been doing that since i was a little kid so i think it'd be very hard to go back and recreate that now because you have certain biases, you have experience of your own, you have you're looking at things through distorted lenses because of because uh, of your life experience. But back then, if you're reading something in 1979, 1981, 1983, 1989, like it, it, you don't have those yet, and yeah. you're experiencing it in a much more pure form, I think. Um, but I was being interested in it back then. I've read so many of these books that you. You couldn't do it today. You couldn't just start one day at age 40 or age 50 or age 60 uh, when you have a family and all these other responsibilities and everything else. So I feel very fortunate that I read all these guys growing up and have a good understanding of the history of the genre and reading like Most Dangerous Game uh, by Richard Connell and uh, Rogue Mail by Jeffrey Household, uh, First Blood by David Morrell in 1972. So all these guys that moved the genre forward, uh, Ludlum, Le Carre, of course, uh, like all these guys that, that moved it forward and did their did their part to get it where it is today. So uh, I feel um, uh, kind of obligated to to continue that tradition uh, and and honor their legacy by making these books the best I possibly can. Yeah, and they're 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 and I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you, but they've generally jumped to the top. My my list always had two people. You know when they talk about like the the Mount Rushmore of whatever, and my two faces on the Mount Rushmore at the time were. Tom Clancy, uh, I first read Cardinal of the Kremlin was the first one I read mm -hmm. him back in 94, maybe, nice. Death of the Woods, when I was at high school. Mm -hmm. And then about early 2000s, I started reading Patrick Robinson and his yeah. books around, because uh, they kind of jump between the Navy SEAL world and the Royal Navy world. So okay. one of their main characters is a submarine captain, and my dad had started off in subs, and they talk nice. about uh, the Holy Loch and Faz Lane, and it was places I had visited. So when, nice. and and there's one of his main characters lives in Edinburgh where I also used to live. So when when he was talking about the character walking down a specific street, you kind of shut your eyes and sit back and go, I know exactly where he's going. So they were the two that I've always held in in very high regard, and yours are right up there. Genuinely, I've put you up on the Mount Rushmore as well, um, because they have that genuineness. The only thing that kills me is I keep having to stop to jump to Google because you're such a gear guy, <laughs> and I don't know what know. the weapons look like not being a an operator being involved. <laughs> so, like you said during the chat, you're like, oh, they carry a very specific type of knife. It's it's not just like you know a a five five six semi automatic. It's a very and I'm like I don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, okay. And then yeah. and then a couple of chapters on, you'll be like, and I was aware of the Dragon of Sniper Rifle. And then you said, but uh -huh. they don't use that anymore. You use this new one. I was like, oh damn! Back to Google. <laughs> Let's yeah, find out what it. that is now.
Yep, exactly. And I love, uh, you know, I, I make people do a little work uh, in the novels. You got to come and do a little little work uh, in some things. I leave little hints to certain people or certain things that have happened throughout history that if people are interested in it, then they could jump to Google. Or if not, they can just kind of skip over it. And uh, like with the sniper rifles, like so some people might just be like, oh, it's a rifle. You know, keep going. But somebody might be interested and then go back and be like, oh, now I see. Like, this is really cool. So it's possible to just jump over some of those things. And then but it's there for the people that are interested and for the people that already know what they are it adds that little bit of of credibility like uh he didn't just say russian rifle uh he got this right and i'm sure i'll mess something up at some point and i'm sure uh in today's day and age people will will let me know um because there's so many ways to reach out these days but uh you know that that's just that's just how it goes and uh and a great part of that is that you know that engagement is is wonderful and helps you build a readership and establish a relationship with a with that readership and a trust with that readership, which is so important, uh, especially today, I think. But uh, but now people can check you also. So once it's out there in print, like if you messed it up, like they can tell you, they can look through that research and they can they'll let you know. Um, so I'm sure I'll mess something up at some point. But uh, so far, I think I've been pretty much. Uh- this is, this is one of the scary things about recording things and, and uploading them is once you've said it, it's said and you can't uh, can't go back yeah. right there and it's said. So, yeah. uh, we call that a fire yeah. and forget weapon. So that round <laughs> is downrange. You can't pull it back. You can't no. pull it back. Like it's, no, it's gone. Better worry about the next one. No. Yeah, we, we've only ever had in the whole, this is episode 48 we're recording just now with yourself, Jack, because um, we started right at the start of lockdown, me and Chris just decided, we've been talking about it for a while, we should start a podcast, and then when lockdown happened, we thought, well, no one's doing anything, let's start it, and we've only ever had one person give us a negative comment the whole time, and it was some random American person accused us of fat shaming, and to this day, we cannot work out, when, uh, we very possibly and probably did, but she came out and, and she commented on the video, silly goose gang are disgusting, fat shaming people. This is disgusting in this day and age. You mean Chris went, okay, maybe we did. Yeah, you know, people are going to get upset about something. You know, you can't really help that. And uh, that's kind of what I do when I read these negative reviews. I do that every now and again because uh, they're kind of uh, interesting to read. But uh, it's always amazing to me how much time people put into being negative when they can choose to do something positive. Or let's say if they don't like a book, Okay, well, they can move on to one they like, uh, but instead they choose to spend even more time telling other people it, with a medium that's subjective, like art is, um, that how much they hate was, and also things that aren't even true, you can say, and put it out there, and they're out there. I mean, but, you know, hey, it's just interesting to me how much bandwidth people expend on being negative when they can choose to turn that bandwidth towards in a direction that's positive uh, and probably be a lot happier people and probably make those around them uh, a lot more happier as well. So, uh, but, you know, hey, that's that's just how it goes. 100%, 100% agree. You know, it's... Um... You know, you're not going to go anywhere and find, uh, you know, anybody, anybody who's successful. You know, I'm not going to go to Instagram uh, and and look at, you know, Jack Carr calling somebody an asshole and he's, you know, you know, your your boxing ability sucks or your, you know, your books. <laughs> you know, it's just not going to happen. You know, too many things to do. And uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know why people do that. I get, you know, I guess they're unhappy, but you know. Um, 
Yeah, yeah it's, it's an interesting dynamic, that's for sure. Uh, and it's kind of self-perpetuating as well because um, you get to look at all these things on Instagram and you get to see someone's best second of a day that's been uh, you know, put through filters and, and everything else uh, when right behind the camera it's maybe chaos or they're miserable or who knows. But uh, then that makes you feel even worse because your not, life's not like that. And then you get to lash out at someone because there's no barrier between you and being able to express yourself like there was 30 years ago when you had to write a letter to the editor and sit down and write something out longhand or type something out, uh, find an address, put a stamp on it, put it in the mail. It would then arrive in an editor's uh, inbox on their actual desk that they then have to open, read and say, oh, this person is crazy and throw it in the trash can. Well, now that crazy person whose letter used to go in the trash can, no barrier. It's out there. It's up there. Uh And uh, so it's an interesting dynamic. So those things that are the the bad parts like that there's also the good parts of being able to uh, engage with people to thank people in my case because i feel so fortunate you know because other people took a took a risk on me as a new author and then really the reason these books are successful and the reason that savage son made the new york times list is because people took a risk on a new author and then they told a friend uh because this thing now i was kind of hoping that i'd go on joe rogan before uh the first the third novel came out to to help get it on the new york times list but it was after it made the new york times list after that um same thing i was hoping chris pratt would say something and post something uh about it before like that during that first week which is the most important week for an author when his book comes or his or her book comes out uh but instead it was after which now I love because it means that this was a grassroots effort. It was from people, it was from tactical shooters, it was from martial artists, it was from hunters, it was from readers, it was people that took a risk and then told a friend, whether they did that physically or they told it to their one follower on social media or their 10 million followers on social media. But it was it's a modern day word of mouth that uh, really made these things a success. It wasn't because I had a platform, because I didn't. It wasn't because I went on a news show, because I didn't. Uh, it made the New York Times list before any that happened which uh which now i am very thankful for yeah that's um me and ali have talked about this you know uh you know with doing doing this podcast is you know we didn't want to we didn't want any you know any press you know to you know to buy any press to you know to advertise what we're doing or you know ask people for favors to you know to share it or anything it's like let's do something let's do it as good as we can without being fake you know let's be ourselves and let's build this thing and if it becomes something it will be because we did a good job um you know and, and uh, you know we're slowly getting there um so you know hopefully you know and i love that it's, it, i think it's got a lot more value you know if, if you had went on, on on joe rogan uh you know and it was listened to five million times and you know your book done amazing because of that yeah you'd still accept it but it means sure. more to do it <laughs> the other way the hard way it means a lot more right it does. It really does. And I was kind of like, I've known Joe for a long time and I was like, man, why, why haven't I been on that show yet? Uh, and but I'm now I'm so glad that he did not have me on until after he made the New York Times list. I am so thankful for that. Do you think, Jack, that having spoke to, you know, a few people that know him, uh, you know, and they all say he's a really nice guy. Um, do you think he did that deliberately to, to try and, you know, you know he maybe didn't want you to 
it did happen that way he wanted it to happen the way it did happen do you think do you think he's you know the kind of guy who thought that far ahead that is a good question and i'm gonna ask him um <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm definitely gonna ask him that question because i'm kind of i'm curious uh i don't think so i think people are just so busy but i'm not sure i'm just guessing uh so i don't know i don't know the, the answer to that one. i'm gonna i'm definitely gonna ask him that you would say i think jack could do this on his own he doesn't need my help and uh that'd be cool yeah it'd be, it'd be a cool thing yeah. if he did do that um that would be that would be super cool but you know, like you said it might just be a coincidence but yeah i think that would be a yeah, cool thing thanks for yeah, I'm, I'm definitely gonna ask yeah <laughs> same thing i went on that tucker carlson show but it was well after that it made the new york times list so uh you know those are some big some big audiences there but uh but all those big ones happened after it made the new york times list so i i yeah now it uh, you're right i I've, i'm so thankful that none of that stuff happened and beforehand i was hoping all of it would happen ahead of time to help it make that list because it's a big it's uh it's important to, to to make that list as far as growing readership hitting a different audience that only kind of looks at those type of books um so it's a it's an important step uh, uh in in the journey but i'm so glad now that uh, it had happened all organically all naturally grassroots people telling friends hunters shooters martial artists like i love that part now it, that that means a lot to me Awesome. Uh, now we've been we've been we've been out taking your time for like an hour and a half. Yeah, ninety minutes. We don't want to take any more of your time. Um, I'm, you know, I know you're a busy guy. Um, but yeah, I'd like to say thank you very much for for giving us your time. And uh, if you ever need any any little details about something, if you're doing something about a Scottish guy or anything here. You could, you could, Dude, you seriously, could I might uh, reach out to you guys. I want to get back yeah. up there. It's been a long time since I since I've been there. So uh, at some point, we'll, well, next time I'm there, I'll let you guys know, and it'd be awesome to to meet up for a drink. Oh, absolutely, hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, as I say, Jack, really appreciate you know being extremely gracious and uh, delighted that you were able to come on. I've got to talk to you about three books that I've absolutely loved. Um, it's been it's been really good fun. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, hopefully I'll see you in person after uh, after this this uh, current craziness is over. Definitely. Yeah. Bring a key. Bring a key with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got to start working out. <laughs> uh, okay, awesome. well, you guys take care. You too, Jack. Episode 48, Sally Goose Gang podcast done and dusted. Just take us. Silly Goose Gang Podcast.